Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. With training camps around the National Football League opening up soon, we'd like to take you back to a different time and place when preseason sessions look much, much different. For this episode of When Football Was Football on the Sports History Network, We'll sample some training camp tales from both the Chicago Bears and the Chicago Cardinals going way, way back, even to the beginning of the NFL. You'll quickly notice two significant differences from then and now, the conditioning of the players and the more simple purpose of the training camps. With players in the early days forced to work other jobs in order to survive financially, They didn't spend a great deal of time on conditioning. In fact, it was quite rare for an athlete to do anything at all to stay in shape during the off-season. After all, that was what the training camps were for, to get the players in shape. Of course, nowadays, players never really get out of shape. There is too much riding on retaining their jobs to slough off at all. Everyone is bigger, stronger, and focused. The financial security offered by today's contracts ensures that an NFL player can afford to work at his job all year round. So here's a great example to start us off of how a player prepared for the season dating back to the 1940s. And this comes from the Chicago Cardinals lineman Chet Bulger, who said, In the afternoons, I'd go over to Jackson Park in Chicago. I'd tee up a football, kick it off, run after it, and then walk back. Conditioning back then was for breathing in your lungs, but when you got to training camp, it was like you never ran before. It was brutal. And then in 1944, the Chicago Bears were training far from the city in Rensselaer, Indiana. Hall of Famer Ed Sprinkle recalled his preseason training regimen. Sprinkle said, I never worked out in the off-season, nor did anybody else in those days. You had to have another job in the off-season. So for about the first two weeks of training camp, you'd be so stiff and sore you didn't want to do much of anything. We worked out twice a day. Actually, the first couple of days I felt great, but then the stiffness and soreness would set in, and it would be a real drag to get out there and go through all the misery. I think I would have loved the situation like the guys have it today, where you could work out and stay in shape for 12 months out of the year and make enough money so you didn't have to work in the off-season. Well, training camp was never easy for the players in the 1940s because, as we mentioned, few worked out in the off-season. Lineman Vince Benotis of the Cardinals said, it wasn't in our regimen, that is, training. Players in the 1940s rarely lifted weights, and cardio monitoring and exercises were yet to be invented. Cardinals halfback Marshall Goldberg preferred to simply run to get in shape. He said, we had no prison training requirements. Most players worked out on their own. I like to run uphill. I'm from West Virginia, so that's how I got in shape, running up hills. 
Actually, one of the very first training camps can be traced to the Chicago Bears back when the team originated as the Staley's in Decatur, Illinois. In 1920, George Hellas coached the team and his players were all workers at the Staley Manufacturing Plant. Other early NFL teams would rarely practice as a team since players were working full-time jobs and football was strictly a part-time endeavor. Hellas changed all that by providing full-time employment in one location and stipulating in his own contract with the Staley Company that football practice time be set aside for the team. In 1920, the Staley's began football practice immediately after the final company baseball game on September 26th, leaving only a week or so before the team's first game against the Moline Tractors on October 3rd. But it was a dedicated week of practice by the entire team who were all in one place at one time for the entire week. As the years went by, teams would hold preseason camps where players would take leave of their full-time positions and move to the city of their team for the season. The Cardinals changed that theory in 1929 when new owner Dr. David Jones took the club to Coldwater, Michigan for its preseason training. This was the first time that an NFL team went out of town, so to speak, for its training camp. Players were transported in a bus, but were required to bring their own practice gear on the trip. The team returned to Michigan, and this time in Sturgis, Michigan, in 1930, and player Phil Handler recalled, At Sturgis, we lived in a rooming houses all over town. Meals were in the back room of a downtown restaurant. Their specialty was gravy. The Cardinals' practices were sort of hit or miss. Ernie Nevers was our coach, and we practiced as he felt like it. He felt like scrimmaging the first year we were there, but I'll say this for Ernie, he went out there and scrimmaged with us. The Chicago Bears' first preseason camp out of town was held at the University of Notre Dame in 1933. The Bears were the defending NFL champs and George Hellas had just returned to coaching after a three-year absence. He once told the Chicago Tribune that over the course of his lengthy career with the Bears, he remembered, in quotes, little things like the training sessions in the early days, Ellis said. There are lots of nice things to remember, but I also remember little things like the box lunches in the early days when we practiced twice daily in Logan Square Park in Chicago. A milk wagon would come along and we'd buy milk for the players during practice, so we treated them very well. In 1940, the Cardinals trained at Morgan Park Military Academy on the south side of Chicago, a boarding school that was largely empty in the summer. The Cardinals used the facilities from August 18th through September 11th, 1940. And for the cost of just $2.50 per person per day, the Cardinals' entourage was provided with lodging, meals, and the use of the school's athletic fields. All-Pro halfback Marshall Goldberg remembered the dreary camp. He said, We stayed at the school for three weeks, but it wasn't much of a camp compared to today. We had one trainer, three coaches, and not enough footballs to go around. Fullback Mario Tonelli added, We worked out twice each day. We started at 9.30 or 10 in the morning and went until lunch. Then we came back out about 1 o'clock in the afternoon and practiced until 4 or 5 o'clock. After dinner, we had a pep talk from Coach Jimmy Councilman and then went over film or specific plays. At night, we were just plain tired to do anything. 
What the players did have, however, in 1940 was each other. Billy Duell, one of the top flight receivers of the 40s, joined the Cardinals late in the 1940 training camp after spending the summer winning 19 games as a minor league pitcher in Muskogee, Oklahoma. For Duell, the first training camp was a memorable one as the lanky end went up against one of the best in the business with the return of Gainel Gus Tinsley. Duell said, Gus took me under his wing and taught me more moves in 20 minutes that I continue to use for the rest of my time in football. Chet Bulger joined the Cardinals in 1942 and distinctly remembered his first training camp at Carroll College in Waukesha, Wisconsin. He said, I remember the field at Carroll College because it was so hot because of the sun's reflection off the limestone around the field. They fed us very well and you could eat all you wanted. But then they started to run us and run us and run us. You learned not to eat too much at lunch. There was one lone tree beside the practice field and everyone used it for support and to throw up on it during practice. I checked on it the next year and it was about 20 feet high. Bulger also had fond memories of Coach Councilman from those training camps saying, Jimmy was a game psychologist. He could get you so motivated and he was such a character with his mane of white hair covered with dust from the chalkboard and his habit of continually smoking a cigarette. He wore those baggy pants and he kept the cigarettes deep down in the pockets. He'd search for the cigarettes, light one while continuing to talk and then forget and put the pack down. That's when the leeches would take over. We didn't get paid in training camp and we received just $2 per day in meal money so that's why they were stealing councilman's cigarettes during training camp. By 1946, the pieces were beginning to fall in place for the Cardinals in terms of a championship team, and they did win the league title a year later. Councilman opened training camp in early August of 46, once again at Carroll College. The coach plotted a rigid training encampment with no thrills or luxuries to distract the players. He immediately installed curfew rules with the day beginning promptly at 8 a.m. for breakfast. Football would then consume the day until lights were out at 11 o'clock p.m. Councilman's focus was clear. He had finally been given the players with the potential to contend in the National Football League. Councilman stated, We drill twice a day, a total of four hours. And between and after practice, we have study periods and skull sessions where we study plays, make explanations, and work on assignments. I'm getting a tremendous thrill out of the way our men are working, and I know the rest of the staff is too. Let's switch over to the Bears. Don Kent was a halfback for the Bears from 1947 through 1955, and the team was still training in Rensselaer. Kent said, I was at nine summer training camps down at St. Joseph's College in Rensselaer. I spent so much time there that I thought I was going to be ordained as a priest. We're out in the middle of the cornfields, the middle of nowhere, but Coach Hallis, who was a very suspicious sort, always thought the Packers or the Cardinals or somebody had scouts out there in the cornfields spying on us. He'd have people combing the cornfields around the training camp. And Hallis would say something like, they're spying on us, I know it so we're going to camouflage this play. Then there was a story about huge 6'8 defensive end Doug Atkins of the Bears. After a long, tough, hot practice in Rensselaer, 
Atkins was looking for forward to some quiet time in his unair conditioned dorm room at St. Joseph's College. Typically, the rookies were housed on the second floor, and one of them was playing a radio very loudly above Atkins' first floor room. Big guy just couldn't sleep. So Doug pounded on the ceiling and demanded that the radio volume be turned down. His polite request was ignored. So what's a guy to do? Atkins took out a gun and shot it through the ceiling, and the radio was never played again. Lineman George Connor described training camp in Indiana as follows. He said, Rensselaer was the garden spot of America. There was one bowling alley and I think one saloon. Every once in a while, we'd get out to the one golf course, and that was about it. There was no place else to go, nothing else to do except football. Quarterback Sid Luckman had a new convertible, and one day we decided to go out for a drive. Sid sat in the back seat. In those days, Sid loved to get tan. He tanned beautifully, and so he put his oil on. Sitting there in the back seat, I was driving when he said, Hey, slow down to 55 and one half miles an hour. That's where I get my most even tan. Life at training camp, ladies and gentlemen. There were some fun times for the Bears in the early 1970s under coach Abe Gibran. Gibran was a large man who loved to eat, recalled Doug Buffone. Abe Gibran was a true player's coach, the kind of guy you love. In Rensselaer under Abe, we had Wednesday night cookouts. It was the greatest time in the world. He'd come up and say, hey guys, it's Wednesday night. This is it. Everybody out in the woods. So we'd build a bonfire, bring in uh, two kegs of beer, two lambs, and put them on a spit. They'd get corn from the nearby farms. So we'd eat corn, lamb, and drink beer and sit around till 11 o'clock at night. I saw Abe polish off 20-some ears of corn one night. Abe loved to eat. So while the Bears feasted on lamb and corn, the Chicago Daily News reported in 1943 that Chet Bulger, the Cardinals, had a much different menu idea. The newspaper reported, As the drills were halted, Big Chet ambled off the green, calmly picked up two 200-pound rookies under each arm, and announced loudly to the dining room staff, Okay, over there! Here's that beef for our meal today. Well, thank you for joining us on our trip back to a time without air conditioning or Gatorade, back when football was football. Please join us for our next episode when we will explore the events behind the Chicago Bears participating in the very first college all-star football game in 1934. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in the Row One shop, check out thousands of more unique items with retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts and long sleeve shirts, phone cases and mugs, blankets and pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash row one, that's R-O-double-U, number one, 
for access to the full Row One catalog for gallery prints and gift items. Plus, get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row One Pictorum Gallery with coupon code capital S, capital H, capital N, 15. SHN15. So visit Row One at sportshistorynetwork.com slash row one now and be prepared to geek out at the vintage shop for sports history fans. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. We at the Sports History Network are so glad to introduce to you a new addition to our lineup, Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast. It's a weekly podcast that focuses on the history and memorabilia of North American football since its inception in 1869. It's hosted by Bob Swick, the publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and Joe Squires, a longtime contributor to that magazine. The podcast was launched in 2017 and has over 150 episodes that you can listen to now on the Sports History Network, as well as your favorite podcast provider. So join Bob and Joe as they go through football history, talking about the memorabilia and the great legendary players and games of the American Gridiron on the Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast.